You're listening to Rights Up, the podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. Today's episode is the first of three book talks about comparative human rights law, a new book by Professor Sandy Fredman, published by Oxford University Press. In this episode, Sandy talks with Judge Edwin Cameron, recently retired from the Constitutional Court of South Africa. This is a special episode of Rights Up, which takes Sandy Fredman's new book, Comparative Human Rights Law, as a starting point for a global conversation around the role of law, lawyers, courts, and judges in forwarding human rights in different contexts. Each episode will delve into the overarching themes of the book and highlight some specific examples from different jurisdictions on issues such as capital punishment, abortion, the right to housing, health, and education, and the right to freedom of speech and religion. In this discussion, Sandy speaks with Judge Edwin Cameron, who recently retired from the Constitutional Court of South Africa after serving for more than two decades as a judge in South African courts. Edwin was a vocal anti-apartheid lawyer, first appointed as a judge by Nelson Mandela, just as South Africa began building its post-apartheid democracy. He is also a prominent activist for gay rights. Sandy Fredman, of course, is the director of the Oxford Human Rights Hub and a professor of law at the University of Oxford. She has written and advocated widely on anti-discrimination law, human rights, and labor law. Her book, Comparative Human Rights Law, is available from Oxford University Press. And Sandy is going to take it from here. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Sandy Fredman. We're here to talk about my book, Comparative Human Rights Law, which was published late in 2018. And it's the result of a very, very many years of teaching comparative human rights law to a wide variety of students on our taught graduate course, the BCL. I'm very glad to welcome Edwin Cameron, Justice Edmund Cameron. He and I met actually when we were both students on exactly this course, comparative human rights law in Oxford. 1981. 1981. In those days, it was a very small group of students who took this course. It was thought to be quite an unusual course for lawyers to take. In fact, some faculty did not think it was proper law. But uh, we were part of the small and very pioneering group And I think we shared a lot of those early challenges that students face when they first come to Oxford to do a very demanding course. And that was the beginning of my my great interest and studies in comparative human rights law. And uh, I hope yours too. But we both come from the same background of apartheid South Africa, where human rights were... uh, violated by the day by a regime which practiced institutional racism where there was no freedom of speech, no freedom of assembly and so it's not only an intellectual interest that we have in human rights but also a very practical interest come from experience. So since we met in Oxford you've had a a wonderful and interesting and challenging career so perhaps you could say a little bit more about it for us. 
Yes, that, Sandy, thank you. Lovely to be here and lovely to be talking about your book. Uh, and of course, the human rights course on our BCL in 1981-1982 was pivotal for both of us because I left Oxford and plunged straight back into a human rights practice in Johannesburg. Uh, I took up pupillage and became a, an advocate or barrister in Johannesburg in 1983. And at the same time, I also came out as a proudly gay man after many years of struggle, uh, internal struggle and anguish, and decided to hell with that. I will never, ever, ever again apologize for what I am. But while doing human rights work in the turbulent and, and terrible 1980s as the apartheid regime slowly disintegrated and became more lawless, uh, I also worked for LGBTI equality. And when the time for negotiations came in 1990 to 1994, we managed to include sexual orientation as a right in the South African constitution, which was the first time that those two words were mentioned in any constitutional script anywhere. And at the end of the year in which we became a democracy, President Mandela appointed me a judge. And very shortly after this podcast is being recorded, in about uh, eight or nine weeks from now, I will have reached the 25th anniversary of my career in, in South Africa as a judge under the democratic constitution. So it's very apt that we're having this discussion because we've chosen to spend this time talking about the chapter on justiciability of human rights. And of course, Edwin, you come at this from the perspective of having been a judge now for almost 25 years, having been a practicing lawyer on the High Court, on the Supreme Court of Appeal, and then a very distinguished career on the Constitutional Court of South Africa at this very formative time in which human rights have been developing from a background of total absence of human rights. So what I thought would be very interesting to do is to talk about how it is from your perspective, the kind of ideas that I've put forward in the book. The challenge is always many people are worried that when judges adjudicate on human rights, they usurp the political process. And in the newly established democracy of South Africa, this was a, a concern of courts that they didn't want to take over the role which the people had finally gained through much struggle. But on the other hand, there is also the danger that pure majoritarianism will stamp on the rights of minorities, particularly minorities who are disfavoured and who don't have a voice in the political process. So what I've tried to do in my chapter is find a, a, a way of... Um, creating a democratic justification for judicial involvement in human rights, a way in which adjudication can not subvert democracy, but can strengthen and facilitate democracy. So I'd be very interested in your perspectives mm. on what I've written about it, but also from your perspective. Well, let me start by saying two things, Sandy. The, the one is that uh, South Africa's constitution-making uh, happened in two big steps. The first was when the outgoing apartheid government negotiated with all other groups, including the newly empowered liberation movements that had been uh, suppressed and, and expelled from the country. 
And that led to an interim constitution that didn't have social and economic rights in it. Then there was a two-year phase where, after the first democratic elections, the first democratic parliament also served as a constitutional assembly. And that constitutional assembly very carefully considered the competency objections, the legitimacy objections, the democracy majoritarian objections to including social and economic rights. So they included them at the end of that debate in which some of my very close friends and colleagues opposed the inclusion uh, of, of, of social and economic rights in the constitution. You've now got a democratic South Africa, you've now got a majoritarian uh, a, 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 a party committed to social justice and inclusivity and democratic popular participation. Why do you want judges to meddle with that? Well, the last 25 years, I think, vindicate the complexities that your chapter brings to the fore. And that's the first thing I want to say. And then the second thing I want to say is that judges, of course, have two important roles. They have many important roles, but with relevance to your chapter, I would say that the two most important are not just the adjudicative role, which is where judges determine disputes and give outcomes and say, well, this is what the law is or isn't, or this is the order we're going to give. That's a very, very important part of what you do, and it's one that you always think of. But the other important role is, is an enunciatory or uh, a declaratory or or, or ex, ex, expositional function, where, which is related to the legitimization of the value order within which you as a part of a political elite, both an executive and a lawmaking and an, and an adjudicative political elite function. So you are explaining to people, and I've tried to do it, I've, I've, if I've got any, not vanity, I've got no vanity about anything I've managed to do in the last 25 years, but a tiny little bit of satisfaction is that I've tried to be uh, expositorily clear. And that's your job as a judge. You've got to explain to people what you're doing, why you're doing it, and why you're doing it against the background of this very complex and beautiful system of values that's embodied in the South African Bill of Rights and Constitution. So to come back to what I was saying a moment ago, the, the, your chapter, I think, is a very signal rebuke to simplisticism. Anyone who says what was said in 1994 has got now 25 years of history to show why the simple faith in the linear theory of uh, majoritarianism is so wrong, so desperately wrong. The linear theory says there's a straight line and you start here and you end there and where you end is a legitimate outcome which is one given legitimation by a majority will. In the real world, as we know very sadly from Brexit, terribly sadly from two elections in the last two decades in the United States, that have produced counter-majoritarian election outcomes in both cases, depending on your view, uh, not beneficial outcomes, uh, shows that that isn't true. What I try to argue in my chapter is that it's, it's wrong to think of judges and adjudication as 
the opposite of democratic legitimation. And the way in which I do it is to say that it's also wrong to say that judges are unaccountable. They are accountable through the reasoning, through the reasons that they give. And the reasons that they give should be framed in what I call a deliberative sense. That is a sense of deliberative democracy rather than just democracy which is based on populism or who, who can speak louder or whose interests can prevail. And that's what I'd be interested to know your views about, which are, is it the case and can it be the case, and this is obviously an ideal form of how adjudication should be, that when you say that judges form a legitimating function, that what they are asking for is a strong justification from authority about what the reasons are for the actions they take, but not just any justification, but justification which is compliant with human rights values and human rights law. And that's what I call bounded deliberative democracy. The deliberative democracy isn't only about the deliberation and the plausible reasons, but the plausible reasons that can show, that can require governments to account for their actions in ways which are consistent with an interpretation of human rights. And hold governments responsive to the values that both arms, or all three arms, are accountable for within the value system that all three are part of. And that, uh, and to use the, the the concept I used earlier, of course you part of a political elite as part of the judiciary. It, this was the insight that positivist judges denied for more than a century. But of course you are. Uh, but also, you are part of a wider democratic accountability and a wider democratic discourse to which you are also accountable. So I think judges do hold governments accountable. And why I think that South African history over the past 25 years has been such a, a, a powerful insight into this whole debate, if you take the first and easiest example, was the death penalty. The parties did not agree. Some of the, the outgoing National Party government, which was very, the, the apartheid government, had amongst in the Western world was the, 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 the most signal uh, exponent of, of the death penalty. Up to 165 people in the, in the worst year were executed in the last few years of the apartheid government. And the ANC was against it for deeply emotional reasons because many freedom fighters had been executed grossly unjustly and had been created martyrs in, in a very anguishing way. But there was no agreement, and the complexity was that the majority of people in South Africa, now we're talking a black majority, favoured the retention of the death penalty. So it was left to the judges. And the very first case argued on the 15th of February 1995 was the death penalty case, State versus Makwanyani. It wasn't the first judgment delivered. That was a case about confessions. But... The court heard it and all 11 judges in the end gave their own reasons in a judgment that I think is rightly cited uh, in many human rights courses and discussions and, and, and books uh, and leading amongst them Chief Justice Arthur Chastelson's judgment. And it took away a problem for the 
the democratic legislature, which was done with implicit and almost explicit consent. Now, the second issue is one that concerns me uh, very intensely as a proudly gay man who sat through all of this, who was part of the negotiations uh, that had the outcome of including sexual orientation and LGBTI equality in the Constitution, was that there was no doubt that uh, we'd made signal progress in South Africa through visibility, through inclusiveness, through being proud and outspoken about LGBTI equality, but that most people still resisted it. And yet through a series of cases, the democratic legislature left it to the courts to deal with this terrible problem, which is that the constitution said there cannot be unfair discrimination against people on the ground of sexual orientation. Now, how do you embody that practically? It, it happened through a series of decisions that explained to the public, starting with decriminalizing uh, private consensual homosexual acts between adults, in 1999 and ended seven years later with a marriage equality. Now the upshot of that is that we now are the first global South country with a majority of people who support the retention of gay and lesbian equality in the constitution, which I think is a remarkable achievement. So it, 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 it's an answer because the Democratic legislature had options all along. And in fact, it may well have had a, a two-thirds majority to change the Bill of Rights to remove sexual orientation. A third example, which I think also illustrates your book, is also very personally important to me, which is the provision of antiretroviral treatment to uh, South Africans, which was a terrible tragedy because President Mbeki President Mandela's successor in 1999, just as hundreds of thousands of people were dying every year, and just as the answer to HIV illness was becoming available in the form of antiretroviral therapy, just as I'd managed as someone who became infected with HIV as after I came out as a gay man, had had my life saved, saw a president refuse to accept the fundamental science of AIDS and of HIV and refused to make these available. Now there, there was some of the most spectacular public interest litigation in the form of the Treatment Action Campaign case. And again, it, it played into a complexity within the parliamentary process and within the democratic process because there were people who wanted President Mbeki as president, who wanted the ANC as governing party, who didn't want to remove President Mbeki because he had these ghastly, nightmarish, horrific views on HIV, but were grateful that the courts could. So I think that behind all of that, uh, the, the model that you propose is one that is explicative, that is illuminating, and that is a caution against simplistic rebukes to adjudication within the social and economic rights. So thanks so much for those, those examples. And just to start with the death penalty. So there is a chapter on the death penalty in the book where the Makwanyani case, which you mentioned, is very much at the forefront of the discussion and has become 
quoted in many different jurisdictions for the way in which not just do the various opinions, but particularly Chief Justice Chaskelson, not only does he espouse the values of the Constitution, but he gives such strong, cogent reasons to justify why he comes to the conclusion that he does. And what I think is interesting, and I'd also be interested to know your views, because the some of the fascination of comparative human rights is looking at the ways in which these kind of judgments are understood in other jurisdictions and how we get the transplantation both of reasoning and of conclusions, but sometimes reasoning with different conclusions, but still the reasoning which all contributes to the deliberative process. And as you know, because we studied it together very in, in that first comparative human rights course, the death penalty in the US has uh, had waxing and waning in terms of the the judgments that have come out and one stream of US judges, particularly Justice Brennan, has focused on the the, the very same point that Justice Chaskelson in Makwanyani focused on, which is the basis in dignity, mm. um, which Chas Justice Chaskelson quotes Brennan when he comes to his conclusions in, in Makwanyani, while at the same time saying this is also within the South African context. On the other hand, and what I trace in my chapter on capital punishment, you see the Indian court also looking at alternative jurisdictions, but actually coming to very different conclusion. So maybe you could say something about judges in different jurisdictions. Is there a kind of universal answer? Did the Indian courts get it wrong? Did the the early majorities in the US courts get it right and the later majorities get it wrong. And most of all, the South African case of Makwanyani, which has been a shining beacon for anybody who's against the death penalty. Is that what's right or is it all relative to the context of adjudication in a particular country? Let me start with another theme in Chief Justice Chaskelson's judgment in Makwanyani, and it's a very beautiful theme because it's about minorities, about weak minorities, about the worst amongst us. He actually uses that phrase. And it's a very powerful passage because it resonates, I think, through the whole of democratic theory, that all of us are minorities. And of course, in South Africa, we have 11 languages. We have no the Zulu speakers or the, the Swati speakers or the Sutu speakers or the Tsono Pedi speakers or the English speakers are not a majority. No one is. So we are all composed in every democratic polity of different, often concurring and overlapping circles of minority. Some of us have this uh, faith or not, a different faith or a cultural affiliation or not. So I think that Chaskelson's judgment is important for that as well. And of course, when you're applying the death penalty, it's one of the smallest minorities of all uh, in the face of a, a strong majority that wants to, to enact this uh, terrible vengeance for, for horrific crimes that have been committed. The second thing I'd say in, in answer to your question is that, that it's not true that judges sit in an ivory tower, that they don't know much about what's going on, that they sit in some smug tea room and then decide. Because of course judges are highly, intensely aware of the political process, they're aware of the, it's the, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
uh, said after Roe versus Wade that perhaps it would have been better to go through a longer democratic process first. And that's still something that's argued about in the United States. Democratic responsiveness does occur in a context of India, of the United States and of South Africa. It doesn't, uh, adjudication does not occur by tenure judges. Uh, judges are highly responsive to what's happening, but that sometimes they must step in and do what Justice Chaskelson said. And this may not be popular, it may not, uh, it may not carry the support of everyone, but if you don't support this minority, who are often poor people, dispossessed people, marginalized people, not necessarily LGBTI people or women or a cultural group, but just desperately poor people. If you don't do this, you're actually failing in your basic duty as a judge. So certainly one of the themes that I've got in this chapter is draws on uh, John Hart Eli's understanding of representation reinforcing human rights, which is brought into my theory of, of bounded deliberative democracy, which is it's exactly there where uh, people in small minorities don't have access to the political process, or even majorities, as we know from the apartheid history. That is the place where judges ought to step in and where human rights law should carry weight. But what I also try to show is that it's not just about the judges, it's about the human rights document or the instruments which have been agreed and particularly that's why I call it bounded deliberative democracy because it's not just up to the whim of the judge. The judge has to show both that the judge's own reasoning and the reasoning of the legislature conform to the background values. Let me give you an example from South Africa which is not just that an excluded disenfranchised majority should be brought in which is what happened after apartheid but within the post-apartheid majority, there was occlusion of democratic processes. And our court, in four very significant decisions between March 2016 and December 2017, gave enormously important decisions about how Parliament was dealing with a rogue president that, or let me rather put it this way, with a president that many considered gone rogue, namely President Zuma. We gave a decision on the Nkandla report of the public protector, the astonishingly courageous report of Advocate Tuli Madonsela. We gave a decision on whether a vote uh, could be held, uh, a, a secret ballot could be held. And then, most importantly, on at the end of December 2017, just six weeks before President Zuma was eventually constrained to, to resign, we gave a 7-4 majority decision that told Parliament what Section 89 of our Constitution meant, how to impeach a president. Now, in the dissent, it goes very closely to your chapter's theme. Chief Justice Mukwenge said this is a classic case of judicial overreach. One of the things I'm confident about after my 25 years as a judge is that his criticism will not uh, find purchase uh, in, in, in discussions or understandings of the judgment because the majority judgment in which I joined was a very close analysis of the meaning of a constitutional provision. How do you find as a democratic legislature that a president has committed a serious constitutional violation or serious offence. 
our conclusion was that you can't just do it by vote. It's got to be just it's got to be objectively warranted in some way by a process, by getting the evidence, by hearing the president, by cross-examining the president, which may have been the prospect that ultimately drove President Zuma to resign. So what I'm saying is that the it's not just Caroline Product's footnote to the cognoscenti and uh, our listeners here, but it is really opening the democratic process that might even be occluded where you have had a legitimate election, where you have had a majority government elected, where you have, but you have legislatures who from fear or from torpor or from patronage or from perhaps even a, a lack of proper engagement with their own responsibilities as legislators, which is what Chief Justice Mukwege said in the first of these four judgments, in the Nkandla judgment, haven't given proper effect to what democracy itself requires of them. In these cases, the courts didn't take over the democratic function. It sent it right back to the democratic legislature. So I think that's a really interesting and crucial example of how judges can facilitate democracy. But of course, in my chapter, I also had to confront the situation in which judges uh, strike down democratic provisions which might otherwise have, under some understandings, furthered human rights. So in, our, in, in the chapter on abortion, I contrast the situation in the US mm. where it was actually the courts, as you said, mm. which uh, protected the right of abortion against the legislature, with the situation in Germany where in fact the court struck down the much more liberal uh, legislation on abortion, which had been coming out of the Federal Republic. So I had to confront this question, which is often a question which comes, not just that courts should be constrained because they shouldn't usurp democratic functions, but because from the other side of the perspective, they might actually subvert certain more, um, one might say, progressive decisions of the legislature. That's partly why the whole question of the right to health and socioeconomic rights arises. So I wonder what you thought of that balance between the, the, the concern of, uh, and sometimes well-based concern, that judges could uh, subvert mm what should be democratic decisions and how we draw that balance, which I try to do through saying that judges have to make the decisions within the bounds of, of, of the human rights document, but also that this is a, there isn't necessarily closure. This is an ongoing process of, um, of evolution of the ways in which these two important decision-making, both democratic bodies, move towards a human rights mm. solution? Well, let me say first that I think this illustrates how misleading the uh, tag of activism can be, because an activist judiciary can be a reactionary judiciary that strikes down uh, the will of the people, and, and that has been happening in the United States after years of uh, the activist tag being used in an ideological war against 
judges who are more liberal. Uh, in fact, you've had a highly activist court that has struck down uh, um, decisions of, 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 of the democratic legislature. I would agree with your second point. The second point that I'd make is that uh, I think it, it is a complexity that, of course, it goes ultimately to, uh, to the values that you think are most crucial to uphold. With termination of pregnancy autonomy, is it, is it the woman's autonomy? Is it, is, is, is it the, the unborn infant, the unborn fetus? At what point do you say that Parliament does not, or that democratic legislators does not have the right to enable the woman to exercise her, her autonomy? And of course, one accepts that there are profound, genuine moral disagreements there, which you cannot uh, eradicate from the judicial system. And that's why I think it is a, uh, it, it is a phenomenon of continuing dialogue between various political groupings within the political elite who are vying for a predominant, uh, a most persuasive answer um, on, these, on these questions. So um, the other thing which I, I also had to confront in this chapter is the question of judicial competence as well as judicial legitimacy. You mentioned that South Africa was very pioneering in including social economic rights in the constitution. The challenge though for courts is that those kind of rights, not always, but often require positive steps to be taken by governments. And often the, the criticism of, of courts is that judges are not competent. They don't have the institutional apparatus to adjudicate on polycentric issues. They don't know what the budgetary applications are, that if you give to this group, you may be taking away from that group. They don't know what the unexpected consequences Fuller's are. Fuller's thread, which yeah, is cited so in your book. Fuller's thread. You know, if you pull one thread of the spider web, you might distort the whole thing. And if you try to pull two, then everything starts wobbling. Wobbling. So yeah. what I tried to do is to make the point in the book and show this from the Indian experience that the, the institution of a court isn't fixed in stone and there are certain ways in which the institutional competences of courts can be adjusted to face some of these challenges of positive duties. Mm -hmm. And if there is a social and economic right in the constitution with a mandate to the court to adjudicate on it, then it's almost in the responsibility of the court to adjust its competences to achieve that. The problem is that some people would say then the court is no longer a court and it's turning itself into a branch of the executive or um, making itself uh, a laughing stock or, or reducing its authority. So I wonder from your own experience of adjudicating social and economic rights on housing, on health and on other things, water in the South African Constitutional Court, how that feels from the, from the side of the bench. Mm. Let, me, let me first say that uh, we have a case before us now in the Constitutional Court which didn't concern social and economic rights but land restitution. The Constitution in 1994 in Section 25 of the Bill of Rights promised secure tenure to those who hadn't had it. 
And one of the forms of tenure promised was to a very important group of people called labor tenants who'd lived on farms for many generations and worked on those farms, but were extraordinarily insecure. And for 25 years, really, that's a slight exaggeration because the legislation was enacted in 1998, so it's just more than 20 years. The government executive has been almost completely inefficient in dealing with these claims. What the statute said was you've got to, the, the head of the land affairs department had to register the claims and then they had to be finalized in the land claims court, which is a specialist court. That's the essence of the argument that was made before us in our immediately past May term. And of course, we're now discussing the case, we're writing to each other about it, uh, we're all researching it, we've got our law clerks to research the case. And what the Land Claims Court did was to appoint what it called a special master, which is a rather loaded term from the United States, which uh, Judge Shira Shendlin, Shindlin has has written about. It's it's embodied in a specific rule of the of the federal rules, Rule 53. We don't have a rule like that, but the judge in the Land Claims Court said, I'm going to appoint a special master to sit down with the bureaucrats to work out a plan to deal with these cases. No one disputes that the, that, that the people in question have an entitlement. It just has not been realized because the steps have not been filled, fulfilled. The appeal court reversed that. They said that this was a, a classic case. They quoted Chief Justice Mukwing's minority case, uh, case. But of course, the two cases were very different. The one concerned uh, parliamentary process, the other concerns the the realization of rights that no one denies should be fulfilled. So that's where we are now and how it will come out, uh, there's no way of saying until uh, we've gone through our proper processes in the constitutional court. But uh, I, I, I do want to say that, that, uh, that the competence again is a question for debate, it, 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 and for debatement, uh, I really mean debatement, not just for debate, for accounting on the one side on the part of the judiciary and for accounting on the other part. In your book, you give the good example of how school busing uh, is regarded by many people to have gone wrong because the capacities for judicial supervision were just too, too, too limited and, and, and the requirements were too far going. So, there's no definitive example or counterexample. Again, it's a question of what are the rights at issue. In the case of the labor tenants, it's a limited group of people who are defined, who've been entirely disregarded by the bureaucracy. Should the judiciary once more trust in the, in, in the bureaucracy to deal with this? They've come before us, and perhaps we, we're going to believe them. I don't know what the outcome is. To say, well, no, 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 we're going to do it this time. We've, we've appointed a special person. You mentioned the water case. Uh, the, the evidence before us is also new evidence, which was very similar to that which was brought by the city council in the Majibuka case, which is our famous water case. And there we took into account the fact that the city council had adapted its water plan, which showed that it wasn't incognizant of the needs of the people at issue and that it was making uh, concerted efforts to deal with them. So again, the answer to me is that there's no cut and dried answer. There's no simple answer. 
you have got to have competent judges of integrity who apply themselves to the value system, to the facts, and sometimes the answers may differ. That 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 is in in the end in the the the, the fact that some disputes and some disagreements are ineluctable uh, is something that you have to accept as well. Clearly, this book is about comparative human rights law, and I certainly have got enormous insight from looking at different jurisdictions, not because I think solutions in one jurisdiction should be transplanted whole from one jurisdiction to another, because in you know, the famous words of Aaron Barak, the soil in which you plant something might be very different and the institution which you move over might not flourish. So not because of that, but because there are similar questions, similar challenges facing courts in so many jurisdictions, often against the background of very similarly worded instruments, but very often they come up with sometimes different and sometimes again similar answers. And by comparing them, you gain enormous insights both into each jurisdiction itself, by looking at it as, as it were from the outside, and into potential ways forward in a kind of synthesis of, of, of different ways of approaching things. So I wonder if you share that uh, excitement about looking at things in a comparative sense, which is really the basis of this book and the base of the course we did together all those years ago. And particularly because in my book, what I've done much more than we did in that course is I've tried to bring in the Global South in ways which we never used to do. Um, most of our course on comparative human rights, I think, was the US, the U European Convention, very much Global North. Um, and so I wonder whether you, what you see as a role of comparative human rights law, both in your practice and in your thinking, and in, in, in from a, an academic and research perspective? Well, I think it's very hard to be an isolationist uh, if you're applying any complex value system within a legal system. It's very hard to be an isolationist. Uh, certainly, our constitution recognizes that. It says that in applying the Bill of Rights, you have to take into account international law, and you may take into account foreign law, and our limitations clause, which is the clause against which you measure infringements of the Bill of Rights to determine whether they're justifiable, says uh, a limitation may be justifiable if, if it's a, re a reasonable limitation in an open democratic society. So you have to compare. And I think that's the right way to do it. And I think it's enormously productive and often very humbling to look at other countries, to look at what went wrong in India, to look at what went wrong in the United States, or to look at countries where there, there aren't bills of rights at all, like Australia, and uh, to compare. So it's a very rich source of humility, I would say, to judges and, and, and to academics to look at how complex this is. But at the core of this is the notion that your book propounds, which is the, the redeeming notion, and it's, it, it's not a simple notion, but it's a profound notion, that there are certain rights and entitlements which don't come from governmental largesse or governmental fiat or, or legislative accord. They come from being human. And that, that is quite a radical conception because it, 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 it has a, 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 an incipiently egalitarian uh, 
charge to it, that it cannot be right to live in a society in which uh, people are grossly dispossessed or grossly marginalized or grossly unequal or grossly deprived of rights, or even not grossly. Uh, so so it, it's that promise which lies at the, at the base of the whole conception of human rights in any jurisdiction where it is now propounded by judges or practitioners. And it's one that has a, a tremendous popular pull too in South Africa. We have uh, very many indignities after 25 years of democracy. We have increasing resistance by people who are living in relative squalor, relative deprivation, who are saying, no, we do not accept corruption. We do not accept that government can be so inefficient, so indolent, so unable to fulfill the rights and the Bill of Rights. We're going to burn tires. We're going to... Uh, go on the march, we're going to obstruct roads. So I think at the base of that in intervention by, by, by disaffected communities lies this conception that because they are human, living in a society which is capable of affording them those rights, but doesn't do so, lies a human rights claim. And I think that is common to all the jurisdictions and societies where human rights are propounded. Well, thanks so much, Edwin. I've so much enjoyed our conversation and I hope we continue to have many more similar conversations going forward. And thanks also for all the inspiration from those early years when we shared the BCL course. And thanks to, to you too, Sandy. And thank you for your extraordinary work over the last uh, 38 years in, in the academic field. And of course, you, your work also in, in the practical field. Uh, which has melded the two together in, in a powerful way. Thank you. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. It's produced by me, Kira Allman, and music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts.